Murder is defined as the unlawful, premeditated killing of one human being by another. However, being charged and convicted of murder isn't always as simple as the definition. With that said, let's talk murder. Welcome, welcome to another edition of Let's Talk Murder with Dominique Thorn. For those who may be new, Let's Talk Murder with Dominique Thorn is a crime-based podcast that takes an inside look at the crime from the side of the accused. In each episode, we go beyond the headlines and get up close and personal to the story via the words of the individual charged with the crime. On this episode of Let's Talk Murder, we explore the case of Lavelle Evans. Now listen, this is one, this case, okay, so it's a case that starts in Arkansas, but we end up in Texas. And there's many moving parts to the case, so I'm going to have to take it slow, because baby, when I tell you, this is one that we truly have to get together and talk murder. So with that said, let's take you to the story. Now, let me, okay, I'm going to start like this. According to WFAA.com, I'm going to give you the timeline. The, um, the, the story is entitled Timeline and Slaying of Crystal Jenkins. Now, let's, let's take it all the way back. October 7th, 2006, 5.30 p.m. Lavelle Evans is under house arrest for a federal weapons case when the monitoring unit at his El Dorado, Arkansas home powers off. About 8 p.m., Crystal Jenkins and Mr. Evans are seen on surveillance video at a convenience store in Arkansas. October 8, 2006, 5.04 a.m. A man walking around White Rock Lake calls 911 to report hearing four or five gunshots. 7.08 a.m., police find a young woman fatally shot on the shores of the lake. About 7.30 a.m., Jarvis Moore returns a call to Mr. Evans on the phone that prosecutors say connects Mr. Evans to the murder. 9.54 a.m., Mr. Evans' monitoring unit powers back up in his Arkansas house. October 13, 2006, Mr. Evans is arrested and begins serving his eight-year federal sentence two weeks early for violating the rule of his house arrest. October 19, 2006, Ms. Jenkins is identified as the woman found beside White Rock Lake with the help of her shirt, which advertised an Arkansas voting race. Again, this is coming from WFAA.com, and it's entitled The Timeline and Slaying of Crystal Jenkins, and they cite the source as a Dallas Morning News research. Now, let's go a little step further. Now, bringing it from the timeline, let's go a little bit further past the trial into the United States Courts of Appeal Fifth Circuit, um, one of the judicial records. It is decided November 9th, 2017. And it reads as follows. Lavelle Evans was convicted for the murder of Crystal Jenkins and sentenced to life in prison. After exhausting his state habeas remedies, Evans petitioned for federal habeas relief. Evans' pro se petition claims, among other things, that his trial counsel rendered ineffective assistance by failing to move for suppression of a cell, of a cell phone found in Evans' home. He contends that the cell phone and the subsequently discovered call records linking him to the scene of the murder were obtained from an unconstitutional search conducted pursuant to a deficient warrant. The district court denied this claim, granted a certificate of appealability, and now we affirm. 
Lavelle Evans was convicted by a Texas jury for the murder of Crystal Jenkins and sentenced to life in prison. Prior to the murder, Evans and Jenkins had been charged as co-conspirators in a drug case in El Dorado, Arkansas. On October 7th, five days before the trial was set to start, the Arkansas prosecutor told Evans' attorney that Jenkins had agreed to testify on behalf of the prosecution. Later that morning, Evans met with his defense attorney to discuss the impeding trial. That night, between 7.30 p.m. and 8 p.m., Jenkins' brother saw Jenkins and Evans in a car together in El Dorado. Jenkins told her brother that she and Evans were going back to her house. The next morning at around 5 a.m., a man reported that he heard several gunshots while he was out for a stroll around White Rock Lake in Dallas, Texas. On the shore of White Rock Lake, police found the body of a woman shot three times. The deceased would later be identified as Jenkins. Once Jenkins' body was identified, police obtained a search warrant for Everton's home. This warrant and the affidavit supporting it are crucial to this appeal. The section of the warrant meant for designating the things to be seized failed to do so. Instead, it provided a description of Everton's house in El Dorado. The warrant did not mention or otherwise reference any other supporting material. An affidavit from Investigator Thomas provided more information on the things to be seized. Investigator Thomas swore in the affidavit that instruments of a crime, among other things, were being concealed at Evans' home. It further explained that on the night before the murder, Evans called Jenkins' sister. He asked for Jenkins, and the sister handed over the phone. The sister then overheard Evans telling Jenkins to meet him at a Subway restaurant. The affidavit was sworn to in the presence of the judicial officer who issued the warrant and the judicial officer who signed the affidavit. The state habeas records record does not reveal whether the affidavit was physically attached to the warrant or even physically present when the warrant was executed. Pursuant to the warrant, Investigator Thomas and several other officers searched Evans' home and seized, along with other things, two cell phones. The officer who seized the cell phones kept them in his possession instead of logging them. Only one of the cell phones worked. The working phone's call records show that between October 7th and 9th, the cell phone had made or received at least 197 calls. Cell tower data show that the cell phone had left El Dorado around 10.30 p.m. the night of October 7th, traveled to Dallas, and then returned to El Dorado no later than 9.38 a.m. on October 8th. The data specifically placed the cell phone near White Rock Lake between 4.38 a.m. and 5.07 a.m. Thus, the data put Evans at the scene of the murder. The call log also led police to Evans' relatives, Jarvis Moore and Quinn Moore. Both of them spoke to Evans on multiple occasions around the time of the murder. They described Evans as sounding upset and possibly suicidal or something. At trial, it came out that Evans lacked a solid alibi. In a letter post-dating the murder, Evans wrote to a friend that he could not have killed Jenkins because he had been out drinking with three other friends that night. April McGraw, Evans' girlfriend at the time of the murder, testified to something different. According to McGraw, she left Evans with her child at 6.30 p.m. on October 7th to go to work and returned at 7.10 a.m. the next morning, at which point Evans was home. 
When the prosecution questioned her about Evans' claim in his letter that he had been out drinking, McGraw stated that Evans must have been lying because there was no way that he would have left the house. Separately, there was evidence that someone had tampered with Evans' home monitoring unit on the night of Jenkins' murder. At the time of the murder, Evans was on supervised release in an unrelated case, and he wore a device on his wrist that transmitted a signal to a unit in his home that monitored every time he came and went. The night of the murder, the monitoring unit had been disabled and the backup battery tampered with. The next morning at 9.54 a.m., the monitoring unit was reconnected and turned back on. Evans was tried and convicted in Texas for capital murder. The state did not seek the death penalty, and Evans was sentenced to life in prison. Evans' direct appeal was unsuccessful. In February 2011, he filed a pro se state habeas petition. In it, he raised several claims, including the particular ineffective assistance claim currently before us. Specifically, Evans contended that his trial counsel rendered ineffective assistance by failing to move for suppression, for suppression of the working cell phone and call records. A Texas state trial court rejected all of Evans' claims. The court rejected Evans' ineffective assistance claim because of the defaulted Fourth Amendment claim because it found that his trial counsel believed the best means of attacking the search warrant was on the documentation of what was seized and the chain of custody of the item seized. Thus, the trial court recommended that Evans' claim be denied because he had failed to show that his trial counsel's performance was deficient or that he was prejudiced. The Texas Court of Criminal Appeals denied Evans' petition without a written order on the findings of the trial court. In February 2013, Evans again, proceeding pro se, filed a federal habeas petition once again. He asserted among his many claims the same ineffective assistance claim based on his trial counsel's failure to meet, I'm sorry, to move to suppress. The case was referred to a magistrate judge who recommended denying all of Evans' claims as well as his request for an evidentiary hearing. With respect to Evans' ineffective counsel claim based on the defaulted Fourth Amendment claim, the magistrate judge recommended finding that Evans had not demonstrated either deficiency or prejudice. The magistrate judge concluded that the affidavit supporting the warrant identified the items to be seized with sufficient particularity. Thus, the warrant's failure to incorporate the affidavit or identity or identify the items with particularity was a clerical error, subject to the good faith exception to the Texas exclusionary rule. The magistrate judge further recommended finding that Evans' trial counsel had strategically chosen to object to the cell phone admission based on documentation in chain of custody arguments rather than allege a Fourth Amendment violation. The district court adopted the magistrate judge's recommendations and denied Evans a certificate of appealability on all of his claims. Now listen, Evans filed a motion for a certificate of appealability in this court. We granted a certificate of appealability on Evans' ineffective assistance claim based on his defaulted Fourth Amendment claim. We declined to grant a certificate of appealability on his other claims. Evans argues on appeal that his trial counsel was constitutionally ineffective for failing to move for suppression. 
Specifically, Evans contends that the search which uncovered the working cell phone violated the Fourth Amendment because the warrant failed to identify the items to be seized with particularity and failed to incorporate the supporting affidavit. The call records, as fruit of the poisonous tree, would therefore have been subject to the exclusionary rule had Evans' trial counsel moved to suppress. Moreover, Evans argues that under Grove v. Ramirez, the good faith exception to the exclusionary rule does not apply because no reasonable officer could have believed that the warrant complied with the Fourth Amendment given the warrant's obvious lack of particularity. Finally, Evans contends that he had demonstrated that he has demonstrated prejudice because the call records were the key piece of evidence placing him at the scene of the murder. Baby, listen, when I tell you Mr. Evans was not playing in these appeals, he bought it from back to front and from side to side, and this is what we know. Now, understand this. Mr. Evans sits in jail on a life sentence convicted for the murder of Crystal Jenkins. Now, all that said, from the timeline to the appeal that took place in 2017. Let's do this. Let's have a conversation. Let's find out what Mr. Evans had to say. And with that said, let's talk murder. In the letter I have from Mr. Evans, it starts like this. D.K. Cooper. Enclosed is my story. I tried to answer your questions while telling it. I know it looks long, but it's only four pages. The rest are exhibits. I wanted to keep it as short as possible. In doing so, I left out things. So if you have any questions about my story, myself, or my case, please don't hesitate to ask. Now, with that said, y'all, y'all know there may have to be a part two. But without further ado, let's get into what Mr. Evans had to say. On August 28, 2008, I was convicted of capital murder in Dallas, Texas. A friend of mine, Crystal Jenkins, had been found murdered and I was not just the prime suspect, I was the only person looked at. So instead of finding a suspect based on the evidence, the police looked for evidence based on me as the suspect. Any evidence found that didn't fit with me being the guilty party was either discarded, covered up, or ignored. Crystal had decided to testify for the prosecution in a drug case in which she and I were two or four co-defendants. The state's theory case is that Crystal was murdered to keep her from testifying against me. But the state concealed important facts and documents that would cast doubt on its case. For example, a summary of Crystal's testimony for the drug trial shows that her testimony did not incriminate me in the state of Arkansas, which is where the drug case was pending. Also, Crystal wrote affidavits to the sheriff, prosecutor, etc., exonerating me of drug charges, so I actually needed her to testify. In 2006, I was staying at my mother's house in El Dorado, Arkansas, awaiting trial. On Friday, October 6, Crystal spent the night at my mother's house. She pulled into the driveway about 9 p.m. and just sat there. My cousin, Nathaniel, and I were working on his car, and after about 30 minutes of her sitting there, I went over to see what was up. She said her sister, Felicia, had put her out and that she had nowhere else to go. She said her phone was disconnected, and her car note was about due. She was feeling down, and I told her to go inside and get in the bed. Early the next day, 
Saturday morning, I walk her up. We talk. I let her borrow one of my phones, and she left. Later that Saturday evening, she texted me, asking what I was doing, and said she was thinking of coming over. I texted her back, told her that I was in the yard working on the plumbing, and was about to leave. I went to the Exxon subway shop on 19th and College. I went back home. Then, I went to Garland's house. On the way, I passed by the Exxon subway. Crystal car was parked outside. I blew and kept going. When I got to Garland's, I asked him about a sewer snake and did a little drinking. I was there about an hour. From there, I went to Franklin's house. I sat with him and drank Seagram gin and turned off ice as his girlfriend did her daughter's hair. When I finally left, it was late and I was tipsy. The next morning, Sunday, October 8th, 2006, at approximately 7 a.m., Crystal was found murdered in White Rock Park in Dallas, Texas. Reports say there was a shot-fired call made by a doctor who also saw a vehicle leaving the scene. Police found footprints and a cell phone next to her body. That morning, I walked out of my mother's house in El Dorado. It was early, and I got the grill ready to barbecue. I took my monitor, which didn't really work, and the phone outside to the front porch. I had an extra-long phone cord and an extension card attached to the, to the monitor, which was also attached to the phone. Back then, the cell phone that I was using was singular, and we still paid for minute plans. Any calls that came in, I could just return the call on the house phone instead of using my minutes. I remember April coming back from work that morning. She'd worked the graveyard shift, and I was supposed to be watching Elijah, who was three but whom I got my cousin Takesha to watch while I went out. Andrew picked up Elijah and left. She didn't speak to me, which made me think she knew I'd been out. I remember Greg came walking past while I sat outside. He asked about $100, which I loaned him and never got back. And at approximately 9 a.m., I decided to go find April. I jumped in my brother's truck, a 96 Ford Ranger, tan in color, and pulled out the driveway. Donald lived a few hours down, right at the intersection. I stopped at the stop sign, blew, and waved to Donald. It should be a few houses down, I'm assuming. But, waved to Donald, who was also outside that morning, and who later bought steaks to put on the grill. I arrived at, at Nancy's, April's aunt's house, and her cousin John opened the door for me. April wasn't mad, just tired, and I went back home. I barbecued that day. Sat around, talked to my cousin, Takesha. Early the next morning, Monday, October 9th, Inspector James Wade of the El Dorado Police Department shows up. He informs me that Crystal is missing and asks me when the last time I'd seen or heard from her. I was literally about talking to Wade. I was leery about talking to Wade because he previously falsified an arrest report and affidavits against my brother whose case was also dismissed as a result. But I didn't think Crystal was missing and certainly didn't know I was going to end up being a murder suspect. So I told him that she texted me Saturday and showed him the messages. I also told him that I seen her car Saturday night at the subway. When Wade left, I called my attorney, Mr. Gary McDonald, and told him what had happened. He told me he knew that I was the main suspect in her disappearance 
and that if they came to talk to me again, to tell them I wanted my attorney and not to say anything until he arrived. The feeling was, and still is, indescribable. I mean, El Dorado is a town where they were, the police department is 99% white. There is only one black sheriff deputy. All the rest of them are white. The judges are white and the attorneys are white. And here I am, a black man, being suspected of doing something to or kidnapping a white woman. I wanted to be naive, but the South hasn't changed that much. I immediately contacted everyone that I could remember coming in contact with that weekend and explained what was going on. I asked each person to write on the calendar on the date they saw me, the time, the place, and the time and place that they saw me. Each person said that they would. But by the time trial came, Garland was on parole. He and his wife were afraid that the police would retaliate if they spoke up. Frank caught a dope case and was in jail. He was told he would be charged as an accessory if he said I was with him that night and his girlfriend was afraid also. My supervision was revoked a few days later on Friday the 13th and I was taken to the Union County Jail where Dallas detectives attempted to question me. At the time, I didn't know that the first 48 was filming. I didn't find that out until after the show aired on April 12, 2007. In the interview room, I asked for my attorney, Gary McDonald. While waiting for him to arrive, Detective Ermatinger asked me for DNA. I refused because I was on parole and my DNA was already on file. So they already had my DNA and I didn't trust giving them something to say they found it somewhere else. When Mr. McDonald arrived, he ended the interview and told me to keep my mouth shut. So I never told any police or law enforcement, etc. where I was who I was with, or what I was doing on the night morning of the murder. Not until over a year later, when Franklin was appointed to represent me on the murder case. In the Dallas County Jail, Franklin comes to see me. He introduces himself and explains that he's been appointed to represent me and immediately says, if I want to plead guilty right then, he could probably go and get me 50 years. So I stopped him and I say, so you don't even want to know what happened or where I was that night? He acts exasperated and says, if you had a valid alibi, this case wouldn't have gotten this far. Right then, I knew I had a lawyer that didn't want to fight or wouldn't fight for me. Before Franklin left, he asked me about taking a DNA test. He told me that if my DNA was not at the crime scene, that it would help my case if there was a trial, and that if it was found at the scene, that he would fight like hell to keep it out of trial. I told him I had no problem submitting to DNA testing, but there was no way my DNA could possibly be at that scene. Weeks later, he came to visit again. Before he left, he asked if I wanted to know the results of the DNA test, and I told him I already knew the results. I wasn't there. He responded, well... Would you say your DNA wasn't found there? I found out before the trial that he wanted me to get on the stand and say that I drove Crystal to Dallas, dropped her off in the park at 4 a.m., and drove back to Arkansas. I refused. Also, before trial, I finally got Mr. Franklin to listen about where I was and to take a list of the people who saw me in Arkansas. However, 
I found out after trial that the private investigator that he sent actually worked for the prosecutor's office. This PI tried to convince my mother that I was guilty and that it was futile to look for witnesses. When she wouldn't relent, he gave her the subpoenas and told her to find and serve the people herself. He went back to Dallas. The only witnesses he had talked to were Takesha, who lived with my mother, and Franklin, who was in jail, and who he let the sheriff intimidate during the interview. The first day at trial, jury selection. I remember I told my attorney that I wanted the jury and asked about racial bias and how they felt about interracial relationships. I mean, this is still the South, and I'm a black man accused of murdering a white, a white woman. But he refused, saying he didn't want to draw attention to race, which was impossible not to do. Later, I found out in Mummin v. Virginia, the Supreme Court had mandated questioning the jury about racial bias when there is an interracial violent crime. After the jury was selected, I went back to jail and called April. She told me she wasn't there because she called the attorney and was told that my trial had been rescheduled. The next day, she showed up and my attorney finally interviewed her. There's so much messed up stuff I remember about my trial, but mostly, I remember my attorneys sitting there doing nothing. I remember a detective taking the stand. When asked to identify me, he said, that's him in the blue and white striped shirt. I was sitting there wearing whitish cream, wearing a whitish cream-colored shirt with no stripes. The shirt described I'd worn the day before. I brought this to the attention of the attorneys. They said they'd handle it and did nothing. I remember that same detective testifying to records of phones that he said he found in my old bedroom, but the phones weren't listed with the stuff seized and had never been logged into any evidence room. I remember Jenkins lying, saying he saw me with his sister at a red light on the night she went missing, then the prosecutor showing a video of me at the subway shop on a different side of town by myself at the exact time Jenkins say Jenkins says he saw me with his sister at the traffic light. I remember my attorney asking my, cousin, asking my cousin Jarvis if he knew I sold drugs. My cousin responding yes. Then he just stopped the questioning. I wondered why he did that, then realized he'd opened the door for me to be called a drug dealer throughout the murder trial. And I remember when the trial was over and my attorney and private investigator dropped all pretense of being on my side, basically staring at me and saying, at least we kept you alive and walking away. I've met other guys who had my attorney. We all have life in prison, and we all know that Franklin fed us to the lions. I don't know if those other guys are guilty, but I'm not. Not of this. I've done things. I've sold drugs, stuff like that. I'm not an angel. But I'm not a murderer, and I'm still trying to prove it. I've been gone 15 years. My son was in the first grade, my daughter in daycare when I was arrested. My son is graduating from college, and my daughter has another year to graduate. I miss teaching them how to drive, their first dates, prom, etc. I'm bitter, and I'm angry with the system. All I ask for is a fair trial, and they won't even give me that.
me. Mr. Evans is playing no games because Mr. Evans sent me some affidavits. Now let's let's talk affidavits. Now I need you. I need us. I need us to recognize what truly an affidavit is and the power, right? The power in which an affidavit holds when it comes to the judicial system. An affidavit is a sworn testament put in writing. When you use an affidavit, you're claiming that the information within the document is true and correct to the best of your knowledge. It's like taking an oath in court. An affidavit is only valid when you make it voluntary and without any coercion. So here we go. In the case of Lavelle Evans, the first affidavit comes from Franklin, and it says, I, Franklin, make this statement by my own free will. I live at such and such. This is where I lived in 2006 when Christopher Jenkins went missing and was murdered. On the night Christopher Jenkins was missing, Lavelle Evans came by my house. I don't remember exactly what time it was, but it was pretty late. Me and Keisha was already drinking and he showed up. Lavelle was already tipsy when he got there, plus he started drinking with us. I remember it was the night Crystal went missing because Lavelle called me a couple days later and told me that the police had stopped by his house and told him Crystal was missing and that McDonald said he was the main suspect. So he asked me to write on my calendar what day and time I had seen him that weekend. When the private investigator came to talk to me, I told him I had seen Lavelle that night but he started asking me all kinds of crazy questions and kept telling me that I would get into trouble if I said the wrong thing. So I felt like it would be better if I just kept my mouth shut. I didn't know what to do, but I didn't want to get into any more trouble. This statement is the truth. And if I have to, I'll testify to it. This was dated 72110. Signed by Northern Public. Let's keep going. Affidavit from Takesha. I, Takesha, am older than 21 years of age, have first-hand knowledge of the facts herein, and state the following. In October of 26, I was a resident at the home of Shirley, along with Lavelle Evans in April. In October of 06, on the Saturday that Crystal Jenkins went missing, Lavelle Evans was in El Dorado, Arkansas. On the Saturday night of the weekend that Crystal Jenkins went missing, Lavelle Evans did leave his mother's house three or four times, but he was never gone longer than one hour at a time, or maybe two at the most. On the Sunday morning of Crystal Jenkins' murder, Lavelle and I were at his mother's house. I saw him personally that morning as I passed his bedroom on my way to the bathroom. He left the house that same morning between 7.30 and 8 a.m. after April left with her daughter. The monitor that was on Lavelle's wrist was defective. The federal judge that was on Lavelle's case was told of this at Lavelle's sentencing in Little Rock, Arkansas, about two weeks before Lavelle was arrested at his mother's house in El Dorado, Arkansas. Although I was served a subpoena, I was not interviewed by the attorneys or the private investigator on Lavelle's case until after I showed up for Lavelle's court date, which had been rescheduled. Before Lavelle's trial, the private investigator for Lavelle's attorney told me that it would be a waste of time to even try to get Lavelle off. McClung, one of Lavelle's attorneys, said 
before Liddell's trial that Liddell would be convicted. I, Takesha, state that the foregoing is true and correct to the best of my knowledge. This was dated 4-23-2010 and signed by another Republic. Baby, let me, let me keep going. Affidavit of April, you know, April was also at the house. I, April, do hereby state that everything I described to and state herein, the following affidavit is true in fact to the best of my knowledge. I am April, the ex-girlfriend of Lavelle Evans. In October of 2006, I was living with Lavelle at his mother's house. On the Saturday night that Crystal Jenkins reported went missing, I called Lavelle at his mother's house and talked to him about every two hours from 9 p.m. Saturday night until 5 a.m. Sunday morning. On the Sunday morning of Crystal Jenkins' murder, Lavelle was at his mother's house. He was standing in the driveway when I pulled up that morning after I got off work. This was at about 7, 10 a.m. that Sunday morning. I left LaBelle's mother's house that morning with my daughter at about 7.25 a.m. and went to my aunt Nancy's house. LaBelle arrived at my aunt Nancy's house at about 8.25 a.m. on that Sunday morning, and John opened the door for him. When the private investigator working for LaBelle's case came to Arkansas, he gave me a subpoena to show up for court but he didn't ask me any questions about where Liddell was the weekend Crystal was killed. I was not asked any questions by the private investigator or Liddell's attorneys about Liddell's whereabouts until about 10 minutes before I was put on the stand to testify at Liddell's trial. I make this statement freely and under no duress and without any undue coercion exerted against me by anyone. This was dated 4-8-2010 and signed by in the Republic. Hear me when I say, these go on and on and on. I have multiple affidavits in my hand that relate to the whereabouts of Mr. Evans during the weekend when Miss Jenkins went missing and was murdered. Now understand this. This is what I need to get at. I am a firm believer in liberty and justice for all. I believe in a person being innocent until proven guilty. Furthermore, I believe that everyone is due their day in court and it is on the burden of proof falls on the state to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the individual charged with the crime is guilty of the crime. Baby, I don't know what is going on in this case. But what I'm looking at right here is not liberty and justice for all. Especially not for LaBelle Evans in this instance. Now, here's my question, right? So, if you all remember, Mr. Evans originally had an attorney who he called who was present for the original um, questioning at the police station. But then when it came time for trial, he had a different attorney. So I need to find out what happened, because it sounds like the attorney he had was state-appointed based on the information that was provided to me. So it's like, okay, what happened to the paid attorney? Because, you know, it's it's it said, it's usually said that the paid attorneys fight harder than the state-appointed attorneys. Nothing is true, but that's definitely the story that gets carried. Now, understanding this, if you have an attorney that walks in and tells you, I can get you 50 years, can you imagine how that makes you feel? 
Can you imagine being ready to fight for your life, to prove your innocence, and the attorney that is appointed to you says to you, if you plead guilty, I can get you 50 years. You haven't asked me if I was guilty. You haven't asked me if I was innocent. You haven't even asked me what my backstory was. You haven't even asked me if I was there. You have asked me nothing. Now, what that leads me to infer is that you made a preconceived notation based upon me or the situation or maybe even the evidence that you've possibly seen if you've seen it in advance. However, being that you're appointed to me, you can at least indulge me and afford me the opportunity to let you know why I'm innocent, how I'm innocent, and how I can prove, help you to prove my innocence. But no, Mr. Evans gets told, if you plead guilty, I can get you 50 years. My God today, I don't know how I can embark upon a trial knowing my attorney said that to me in our first meeting. And then we find out that the private investigator allegedly was working for the prosecutor. So hold on, hold on, hold on. You're going to talk to my peoples who are supposed to be those who can prove my innocence, but there's some intimidation, there's some shadiness, there's some conversations that aren't even happening. People are just getting subpoenas to pop up. And then, according to one of the affidavits, they didn't talk to this person until 10 minutes before they took the stand. Understand this. That means there was no detailed conversation. There was no statement of facts put down. There was no notations taken on the statement of facts, nor was there any trial prep for, like, really executed 10 minutes. 10 minutes before I get on this stand to testify to the innocence of the defendant, and you know that on cross-examination, the state's prosecutor, the state's attorney, is going to come for me. 10 minutes before. Are you serious? Now not only is my friend fighting for their innocence, I'm fighting to survive sitting on this stand because I'm just talking to you 10 minutes before I take the stand, I raise my hand, and I solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. And 10 minutes later, it goes live. And to this day, in 2023, Abel Evans sits in jail, convicted for the murder of Crystal Jenkins, and sentenced to life in prison. Life in prison. Do you understand this? On December 18th, Mr. Evans was indicted for capital murder alleged to have been committed on or about October 8th, 2006. He didn't get the death penalty, but he got life. And as he sits serving life, Mr. Evans is fighting for his life to prove his innocence because affidavit after affidavit 
Statement after statement, person after person, they seen him, they was with him, or they talked to him. And baby, let's talk about this chain of custody that was broken when it came to the cell phone. And then, the paperwork that wasn't paperworking, that allowed for the evidence to be included, and the attorney did not go for a motion to suppress. Now, what I will say... The attorney did take an approach towards the evidence. Was it the best? Listen, I didn't go to law school. I don't proclaim to be an attorney. I don't know. That's what they felt was the best approach at that time. However, Mr. Evans feels that a motion to suppress should have been filed based on his Fourth Amendment rights. And we sit here with a phone and phone records that were not a part of the original search warrant that was signed. We sit here with a phone that didn't go through the chain of custody when it came to evidence. It wasn't turned in. It was held on the person by the investigator until a later time. Baby, what? The math ain't mathing. And when the math don't math, I have questions. So listen, let me ask you this. What do you think? Affidavit after affidavit. People who were with him, seen him or talked to him the weekend that Miss Jenkins was murdered. He said he didn't do it. He said his attorney did not have his best interest at heart. And the approach that the attorney took was not one that really put up a fight for his case. So what are your thoughts? I want to know. Hit me. Talk to me. Let's talk about Mr. Evans. On Twitter at Let's Talk Murder. Or Instagram and Facebook at LTMWDK. Again, that's Twitter at Let's Talk Murder. Instagram or Facebook at LTMWDK. I'm Dominic Keaton, and we've just talked murder. Until next time, stay safe and never be afraid to talk murder. This is a Diamond Xon production.